Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, as always, episode 148, Friday, August the 7th, 2020, 148, Mark, 148. Um, That was the address of my home that I grew up in, Mark, 148 Oak Street. So I don't know what significance that has, um, apart from my porn name um, has Oak in it. You know the bit about porn names, don't you? (laughs) I know nothing about porn names, Brendan. How do you get your... Well, there's lots of different ways of doing it, and we'll keep this clean. Um, and that, because we are a clean podcast, it is the name of your first pet and the name of your street you grew up in. Fluffy Park. That's your porn name. There you go. Mine is Max Oak. <laughs> there you go. Of course it is. <laughs> And we'll leave it at that and welcome to everybody, all our new listeners. And don't forget to go to vetgurus.com, the place to be, the place to go. Look at the previous episodes. And I've had a couple of emails recently, Mark, um, of people saying, um, gee, I didn't know your podcast existed. So there are people out there who do not know we exist. And we want to convert them to listeners and, and subscribers. So go to vetgurus.com and we will be very muchly appreciative of that if you do that. So excellent. So what have you been up to, Mark? We've been chatting about um, restrictions and we've gone into a, a hard lockdown here, stage four lockdown here in Victoria, Australia, and um, there is a curfew and we are not allowed out after 8 p.m. at night until 5 in the morning um, unless on any official business like work or compassionate business or going to the hospital, etc. And that's one of our restrictions, Mark. So everybody's going even a bit more batty, but we need a bit of tough love again um, to try and keep this virus under control here, Mark. So, um, yes. So I went out and purchased something, and I'll talk about that in a sec. I'm so um, I'm so keen to see what's in the box. Yes, with a review. So um, how's work been? We've been quite busy as, as we have been for the last few months during um, these current craziness, Mark. I presume you have been also. It's been flat out, Brendan. It's um, it's an interesting thing to contemplate why that might be the case. Um, I've been so initially we had the theory that uh, at work that it was just that people were at home during lockdown and they saw their pets and so, um, so they were going to the vets more frequently because they recognised that lump or lameness or discoloured skin or whatever it was. But I think there's a, a number of other factors that go into it as well. I think um. The uh, the government subsidies, the the uh, job seeker and uh, job keeper uh, have added a little flush of money to people, and I think uh, I think there's something like, uh, if I remember correctly, a hundred thousand Australians have accessed uh, their super um, over the last um, uh, three months, and so that's a big um, bit of cash. And I'm sure while most people are putting that money, you know, into essentials, rent and food or whatever, um, that little flush of cash 
sort of is disposable income for some people and and uh, and they're more likely to spend that disposable income at the vets. I think when things tighten even further in a few months, it's going to be tough, but we're busy as at the moment, Brendan. Yes, ditto here, Mark, and interesting theory that people have that little bit more cash and they decide, yeah, maybe we'll throw a bit towards the veterinarian, which I think is good um, for us, that's for sure. Um, and we are seeing a lot of new clients, yes. So I don't know whether you are as well, Mark, and these are unwell patients. They're not just health checks. So I don't know how that fits in with the whole scheme of things. Um, yeah, but we'll see how it pans out. And um, speaking of being flush with cash, Mark, um, this episode is going to air, well, the day before my birthday, um, the 8th of the 8th. And um, as you saw, I sent you a picture just before we started recording of a gift-wrapped present, a big box, Mark, a big box, which had had happy birthday, Brendan. Had a lovely bow on it too. It did, and it said happy birthday, Brendan, and it was delivered yesterday um, to our house and I was at work and... My wife, Annie, um, sent a, um, a text to me, which was, what the? <laughs> um, and uh, when I got home, I unwrapped the outer box and that gift-wrapped um, box was there with a card on the front saying, happy birthday, Brendan. And she said, wow, who's that from? And I said, it's from me. <laughs> <laughs> she said, well, that's just plain weird. Um, well, that's me. Um so I ordered this online, and it is, Mark, I won't keep you in suspense. It's, it, 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 suspense. it is not veterinary-related. It is the Smeg 50s retro-style coffee machine. Wow. And it is to replace, well, the other coffee machine is still working reasonably well, um, and it's been a real workhorse because we, we'd make anything from five to ten-plus coffees per day every day at our house and it's replacing our old manual one which is a DeLonghi espresso machine um, and interestingly enough this Smeg one is basically the same machine um, I've worked out with a, a Schmeg um, skin on the outside Mark um, and it does look I'll send you a, a picture of it and I'll link to it in the podcast um, but I love it. It's typical Smeg Italian sort of grooviness, grooviness and um, that 50s sort of look with it. So um, I love it. Um, what does it – I, I, I've had the pleasure of having uh, several coffees out of the DeLonghi model at your house. Um, what, does the uh, – being, being, you know, essentially the same structure, is it um, – uh, is it, is it as good, I'm asking? Yeah. It, oh, crap, well, it does look good too. You've just sent me a picture and my goodness. It is pretty smazzy, isn't it? it it's, a, it's a work of, a bit of a work of art. And um, I bought the red colour wine mark because it's faster at making coffees, of course. Um, although I think Annie wanted the, the pale blue model, but there was only a black or red one available when I looked online, so I got the red one. Um, yeah, it's well, it's some minor differences compared to the DeLonghi. Um, the, the group set, the little handle that you um, put the coffee in and tamper it down is a lot heavier. It's a, it's a lot more robust, so it is a better quality there. Um, but apart from that, it's basically the same machine with the with the um, with the Smeg sort of style um, in there as well. And yes, it does make a good coffee, so um, but they're only as good as 
I was going to say the barista, but that's probably not right. They're only as good as the coffee, so I think it's important that you, um, um, in my opinion, you get beans um, and you grind them yourself. Um, that makes a huge difference rather than getting the already um, ground beans, Mark. Um, I think that's one of the key things. So I'm enjoying it, although it's still early day, days and I've um, cleaned out, I've descaled the DeLonghi and I've just put it in the spare room. Um, it's still going strong, but it was starting to be a little bit a little bit temperamental, uh, but that's after about five years, Mark, um, of, of five to, you know, ten plus coffees a day. So it's a, it was a real workhorse, and I'm hoping the same will happen with this one, except with more style, Mark. <laughs> so, so that's so my review. I'll be looking forward to a magic when I come down to Melbourne next. Yes, yes, a Melbourne magic, um, and that may, might be a while off, Mark. Um, so, so that's my review, the Smeg Retro Coffee Machine, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, vetguru.com. Um, nine out of ten, Mark, nine out of ten. Wow. Um, providing it doesn't collapse and, and, for, and, and, and stop working within the next few days. Yes, so that's my review, Mark. Um, we've got some news items. Do you want to jump into your one first? I do. I do want to jump into my one first. Um, I have a story from Sydney University, Brendan. It's a, um, it's about one of my favourite animals. I always, whenever I go diving and I see these guys, it is a top dive. Um, it's uh, the seahorse. And so this article is concerns... The process, we, as we all know, the male seahorse carries the uh, little um, baby sea foals um, and uh, has a, a um, pouch on his belly, um, which sort of makes him look pregnant. And, you know, um, the eggs are laid in there, they hatch out, and the babies develop in there to the point where he, in inverted commas, gives birth. But the interesting thing, the specific point of this article is that... Um, uh, that researchers at Sydney University, particularly uh, Dr. Camilla Whittington, Camilla, yeah, Camilla Whittington, um, and her team have discovered that the wall of the pouch in the male seahorse actually transports specific nutrients to the developing babies during the pregnancy, um, and so in a sense, um, these male seahorses not only have you know, they not only have a pregnancy in inverted commas as the babies grow, but they also have a, well, they, they, there's growing evidence that it's a type of um, of placenta that supplies the, the nutrients to the, um, the babies. So they're, they're, it's very interesting how the, uh, you know, the parallels between um, uh, reproductive processes and reproductive responsibilities, um, how they're analogous between different uh, phyla, different uh, levels of uh, evolution. Um, Jesus. I like the pick of that male pot-bellied <laughs> seahorse, Mark. It reminds me of a few people I know. <laughs> um, if, if his face was a bit redder, I know who you'd be talking about. <laughs> let's not go there mark let's not go there yes interesting article and um i think we were querying whether dr camilla is related to a, a well-known Austra australasian wildlife veterinarian mark um, perhaps you can do a bit of a search while we while we jump into the next news story mark which is one that i found because it related to it 
Well, a series I just recently watched, Mark, and it's about meet the scientist who took on the first Ebola scare in the US. And it's about army veterinarian Nancy Jacks. And the reason why I found this, Mark, um, there was a book, it inspired a book called The Hot Zone, which was adapted into a, a six-part miniseries, which I recently just, well, last week or the week before, finished. Um, I think it was on Amazon, um, perhaps, um, I think, um, made by the National Geographic Channel, but um, it's it's out there anyway. And um, I didn't realise until I started watching it um, that it was um, – it was about um, a star in a veterinarian, Mark. So it was, um, it piqued my interest. And then I went and looked up um, about Nancy and her um, Ebola scare. A very interesting um, story. The, the actual series, if, if you um, see it on Netflix or, or YouTube or whatever, um, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't, it wasn't great. Um, I don't think the acting was fantastic, but um, it was the actual story was certainly worthwhile. Um, and it was about 30 years ago when um, it was about a lab facility for monkeys in Virginia in the USA, um, and they had a variation of the uh, the Ebola outbreak there. They thought it was um, Ebola Zaire, which was a really nasty one, um, strain, um, and it didn't end up being that one, and, and they've named it the Reston, I think, um, which is the name of the lab, um, Ebola virus, um, the strain that was discovered there, Mark. Um, and it just chat and the article, and I'll link to the article um, where they have a bit of a chat to the, the army veterinarian. She's a pathologist and um, a little bit about her job um, and how it, how she ended up being a, a veterinary pathologist as well. Um, and she joined the army and then um, sort of fell into pathology there um, and just happened to be around at the right or the wrong time um, for this outbreak with these monkeys. And they were also infected with... Uh, well, co-infection with the with not just the Ebola strain, but also the simian um, um, virus as well, which confused the um, the um, investigators um, when they were trying to track down um, what they had racing through the laboratory there, Mark. So it's um, yeah, I think it's an interesting an interesting story, and it's something that I'm I, I think at some stage I might try and. Go and find the book and read the book called Hot Zone. Um, did you know about this, Mark? I did. I did I didn't know this specific example, but um, but it is amazing each time that we, um, you know, these dangerous viruses uh, that are almost always zoonoses that start outbreaks like this. Veterinarians play such a critical role in so many steps, don't they? Um, it's uh, it's really. Um, you know, call harkens back to the whole one health thing, um, and uh, and who who would have predicted before this that a U.S. Army veterinarian working at a, a research station in in America would would have to deal with um, a variant Ebola strain? It's um, yeah, veterinarians they need to be everywhere, mate. Yes, and she was she was. Butting ahead against the wall at certain stages, there trying to convince the authorities that hey, we might have something that's incredibly, incredibly lethal, and if it gets out of this laboratory um, in the region they were in, um, there would have been you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people that could have been affected or even die from it. And um, yeah, it took took the authorities a while to realise that hey, maybe we should be a little bit careful about our 
quarantine um, and lock the place down, which they already had um, because some of the caretakers at the facility did get infected with the virus, but it just didn't make them clinically ill, um, that particular strain. So it's a bit of a fascinating story and you know, I encourage our listeners to have a bit of a look at that one. So either look at the six-part series, The Hot Zone or, or the book, or even just click on vetgurus.com and, and it will link to a little interview with the veterinarian in um, in question, Nancy Jacks, Mark. So that's my news story. Excellent, now you, my friend. Now, Mark, you wanted to chat about, um, you wanted to have a bit of a, a quick summary of a particular procedure. Um, well, well I, know, I know we've had. We've had a talk about um, uh, urinary tract disease in our small herbivores before, and we've talked about sludge, but I just did want to, we've had a few of these cases lately, and um, I just did want to talk about some specific aspects of the, the uh, you know, the procedures that we do with them. I'm sure you. And what too. is that procedure? <laughs> yes, and what is that procedure, Mark? So we wanted we wanted to chat about, or you wanted to chat about bladder flushing. I think, yes. especially in, well, mainly rabbits. I think is that that correct, or or do you want to um, broaden it to to our commonly seen small mammals? Well, I'm pretty keen to focus on the rabbits, but also I was going to mention a couple of things about guinea pigs as well. So, why do we do we? Do you do this very often? Is it something that you think um, as an exotic vet that, that you need to know how to do, Mark? I think you do, Brendan. I think I think that well, I would be a little bit careful because I don't think every rabbit that has some sludgy urine needs it flushed. I think you've got to look at the bigger picture, and we all know that um, calcium carbonate uh, crystals in the urine is normal for our um, for our small herbivores, the guinea pigs and rabbits. Um, and so just because it's there, it doesn't mean automatically that you've got to, uh, you've got to get into, um, into flushing the bladder. Um, and similarly, even if there's, uh, um, the beginnings of pathology, I still think that, um, my, my first tactic with these guys is to, um, is to really uh, increase their exercise, increase their mobility, and increase their hydration. Um, that's sort of like my first step. Um, I think that uh, um, that I, I tend towards the procedure that we're going to discuss only after I'm confident that I can't solve the problem um, uh, more conservatively. Yeah, because. We certainly see lots of rabbits, don't we, that have a bit of a bit of milky urine or, or slightly sludgy urine, but clinically they're they're fine. And we need to differentiate ones that are unwell or uncomfortable with with urinary issues that we do consider flushing the bladder. Um, if things like rehydrating them and getting them hopping around a bit more don't help, and and adjusting other things, parameters like diet, etc., that may have some influence on it. Um, Do you, well, you've, 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 you've smacked right into the most controversial issues straight off the bat. Do you, do, what, what's your read on diet, Brendan? Diet. Eat lots of vegetables. <laughs> My summary on diet is... Um, I don't mean for you. Eat a variety of foods, mostly vegetables and not too much. That's a pretty good universal rule across all species almost. Do you like that? Now, as far as rabbits go, yes. Um, 
Well, well what I was getting at, specific calcium. Yeah, yeah. That because there is a lot of effort and you know, if you go online there's long lists of uh of things that you shouldn't feed your rabbit that because it uh because they are relatively high in calcium. And I do think it's wise to avoid maybe alfalfa-based, you know, lucin-based um, uh, um, products because they are definitely rich in calcium. Um, but I, I, I don't, I don't know that you can, in a significant way, affect the excretion of calcium by managing the diet in our small herbivores. I agree one hundred percent there, Mark. I mean, we're going we're going down a rabbit hole with our rabbits here, and not getting onto our topic that we were going to be very punching quick about here. But yes, um, rabbits are pretty unique, aren't they? The way they can absorb passively and actively um, products like calcium from the gut. So, in my opinion, trying to adjust the calcium content of the diet. Um, in any major way, um, as far as the, its effect on the on the actual rabbit, um, is minimal, um, in my opinion. Um, yeah, so I, agree. I don't, I, I don't put much emphasis on that um, to the clients, and I concentrate on the other things you've already mentioned, which includes water intake and trying to keep them um, drinking or or or, or, or in, intaking more water by wetting the vegetables and and um, feeding them high water content. Um, products, um, for example, like what we do with the renal failure rabbits to try and keep those kidneys flushing through and that bladder filling out and flushing there, Mark. So let's, yeah, let's jump back to the topic of flushing natural bladder. So let's assume we have a bladder that we do need to flush in a rabbit, Mark, that's, that's full of lots of sludgy urine and or um, a bladder full of sand. So What's the what's the tips and tricks you want to tell our audience, Mark, about how to do that? Well, I think um, the first one is they, you know, you have to have them anaesthetized. You can't have them sedated. Um, I like to use uh, um, the uh, red rubber catheters. There is some research that uh, suggests those catheters are less traumatic on the urethra, and so we do try and get them. Though in practice, Brendan, I have at times because of my very uh, slack ordering system that I, um, you know, that I forget to put things on the order sheet. Um, I have had to use polypropylene catheters at times, and I can't tell you that I I detect a huge difference if you exercise gentle technique. I think that um, the catheters, uh, while there is evidence the red rubber ones are less traumatic, I think for a single, if you're not leaving them in place, I think the difference is less significant. Um, I like to use, I don't like to pull them in and out. Um, I like to place them, um, maybe put a three-way tap on. Um, the three-way tap tends to help me leave them in place less. If I'm disconnecting, um, you know, reconnecting another syringe to uh, f fill the bladder again and, and, uh, um, and uh, um, then disconnecting, reconnecting, I tend to splash it around everywhere. And I think um, irritation and urine scalding are serious complications from um, – uh, this problem and so we try and minimize that so the three-way tap helps a lot um, the placement I find not very the, the urethra um, is not very difficult to find I know that um, the you know uh, if you're trying to catheterize a female dog um, that can be a very hard uh, you know very difficult uh, 
location to place the the um, the uh, the urinary catheter, but um, even in female rabbits, I, I don't think it's horribly difficult if you um, if you've got everything set up symmetrically and you use uh, good understanding of anatomy to figure out where things should be. Then you generally relatively easily find them in the appropriate locations. Has been my experience, Brendan. Now, what about physically um, um, some little tips about how how do you hold that um, the, the little um, sheath if you're doing a boy there or the urethral area do you use little swabs are you gloved up um, semi-sterile um, what what do you flush with and what do you lubric- lubricate that um, that that um, catheter with well I think the one of the things I think that I was trying to allude to is that I do try to maintain as, as much sterility as possible I do worry that um, these rabbits that uh, develop sludge have a degree of um, of inability to empty their bladder they the muscle in the wall of the bladder has been stretched and if you introduce bacteria into that environment um, you can seriously compromise the you know the the recovery and in fact I, I I'm embarrassed to admit that I think there's been some in the distant past where I may have complicated the problem and eventually led to the demise of the rabbit because once you've got an infection in a bladder like that, um, it can be very, very difficult. Additionally, if you do it in as sterile a fashion as you can, you um, some of these uh, are a primary urinary tract infection. The, uh, the accumulation of um, sludge... Uh, can be the result of a urinary tract infection interfering with the normal uh, uh, emptying of the bladder. And so doing it in a sterile fashion allows you to take appropriate samples to um, make very useful culture and sensitivity testing. Um, So, yes, I wear glove up, um, use sterile swabs to gently hold so there's no trauma on uh, on the external genitalia make sure that we handle all that stuff very, very atraumatically um, and um, and tr- use sterile lubricant. Use um, uh, um, the uh, uh, KY jelly, a sterile um, uh, KY jelly to slide the, the um, catheter into place. I think um, making sure we work as aseptically as possible is really important. And what about local anesthesia? Do you use any... Any put a bit of local in there to flush it through or not? Do you think it's worthwhile? I, I don't think it is. I'm, I, uh, drawing the parallels from maybe the sort of catheterization of um, of cats, I do often use a small amount of local anaesthetic because there's often some urethral spasm in the cats, you know, that have a, a struvite crystal jammed into their urethra. These cats, the, the rabbits, the cases of rabbits that we see, I don't see that, uh, you know, urethral spasm um, as a significant um component of the disease there's certainly some inappropriate elimination and uh and there's often the case that um that the uh, perineum is held in spasm and we will definitely see those rabbits who do a decent um you know they're handled a particular way and they do a decent squirt at uh at particular moments maybe not when they normally would want to, when they're conscious. But um, but I don't use a lot of local anaesthetic once I've got them knocked out, Brendan. And the other thing about local anaesthetic is that it changes yes. the pH. 
um, it is uh, it's not uh, pH neutral um, and and I try to um, not necessarily muck around with the pH of these rabbits too much well I must admit mark I do probably from Looking back on what I used to do with those cats and those dogs as well, I do put a little bit of local in there, um, dilute lignocaine um, initially as I'm introducing that catheter into the urethra. So perhaps I shouldn't be, Mark. Well, well <laughs> I'm sure there's many ways to um, to get the thing done and neither of us, I'm not going to say either of us is wrong or right. And the, you know um, that... Uh, with so many of these things, and that's why I wanted to talk about the, a procedure like this, there's so many things that, um, you know, there's no big database to say, um, you know, we're, we're intuiting, assuming, um, uh, extrapolating to try and do the best we can. There's often not a lot of evidence to say one way or another what's the best thing to do. Yes, yes. So the actual flushing technique then, Mark, you mentioned... Um, that you have to be gentle. Um, how much are you? How do you assess how much to flush in there, and how many times to flush it? Do you just keep flushing until there's no more sludge coming out, until you get in basically your solution, whatever that may be, um, flushing out clear? So this we do yes. Yes is the short answer to your question. Um, yes, we use um, sterile saline um, and uh, we would probably, I, I'm just, we don't have a specific number. Um, yeah, I was just thinking of, that should be something I work out, a percentage of body weight um, to give us a, a volume of the, uh, of the bladder. Um, I'm always a little bit careful because I think some of these ones, they really have... Uh, dramatically dilated bladders and I don't want to put too much in to stretch them any further and I definitely don't want to um, cause any re retropulsion into the um, up into the kidneys but I want enough water in there that uh, enough solution enough saline in there that I can resuspend oftentimes by the time we're doing this we have the calcium carbonate is settled almost like a plasticine um, density uh, in the um, in the base of the bladder, in the dependent part of the bladder. And so we do want to put 10 or 15 mils in there um, that we can resuspend the solution in. And I, would, I was just doing a little um, reflection the other day and, uh, and I estimate that I would probably flush these on average before, they, before I get them clear, maybe um, 15 or 20 times would be a usual sort of expectation that we're going to fill up and empty out. Yes. Well, I just flush until it's clear, like you've mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll have to start counting how many how many times that would be. And it's a bit of – it's it, volume-wise, I think it's really um, – in my hands anyway, it's just um, – uh, by feel, really, more than anything, I'm, I'm palpating that bladder and and just um, what um, palpating it as it's as it's filling up there and not letting it get over full. From what I think for that particular individual, and and flushing things through there, Mark. Do you make um, an what effort? Do you, I was going to ask you a question. Do you make an effort when like, I never make an effort? You know, <laughs> um, the when you've. Uh, put some of the saline in um, and you're palpating the bladder and getting a feel for the 
the dimensions, make sure it's not overstretched. Do you um, agitate the bladder to try and resuspend the the calcium carbonate, or do you just um, uh, fill it up, empty it out, fill it up, empty it out? Balot. <laughs> balot. <laughs> a lot of balot. A lot of balotment, yes. So I do agitate. Um, I'm very good at agitating, yeah. I th- I, whether that helps that much, but, um, I mean, the, the theory is, isn't it, that we have that dependent um, um, sludge set in there, um, yes, sediment, um, and we're, we're trying to suspend it and then remove it through our flushing um, technique there. Um, um, pain relief, Mark. Um, what's your sort of standard process, just quickly, with pain relief for these patients when, with the typical bladder flush? Well, it's in great a rabbit. that you mention it because I think it's foundational to the recovery, and we're fairly aggressive in that we will routinely use both uh, opioid and uh, um, non-steroidal. Uh, analgesia. We'll often also add pentasan because I think a lot of these rabbits have uh, spinal arthritis of one form or another, uh, but we're fairly aggressive with both opioids and non-steroidals. Um, as I think it is, my experience is that the rabbits are in a, a fair bit of discomfort when they get to this point. Well, good summary there, Mark. Excellent summary. Um, and I must admit it is a common a common procedure, I think, in most exotic pet practices um, that we have to, unfortunately, um, catheterise and flush bladders, um, especially in those rabbits with the sludgy urine. And uh, some of our previous episodes have have gone into much more detail about urinary tract um, um, issues in them and um, crystal urea, etc. So I encourage our clients, our clients, our readers, our listeners <laughs> to go to vetgurus.com and um, search for the previous episodes about um, exactly that. And I think with that, Mark, any final closing comments before we get out of here? My only final closing comment is stay safe in lockdown, Brendan. I will do my best and we will talk to you all hopefully next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.